Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can find us on Twitter at PolicyCast, or subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or RSS at hkspolicycast.org. Today, we're talking about electoral integrity with HKS and Sydney University professor Pippa Norris, who directs the Electoral Integrity Project. Professor Norris, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Matt. So uh, what about electoral integrity spark your interest as a topic of study? Well, it was really about the way that elections are going wrong around the world. So the international community is really putting a lot of effort into trying to make sure that elections occur, which really allow the opposition to win, which allow uh, a rotation of government and opposition in force, Mm -hmm. and which have a free and fair outcome. Unfortunately, um, despite the fact that elections have now spread worldwide, it's only five countries which don't have elections, the quality of elections is really bad in many, many places. And that has consequences. So this was an area of research which I thought was really worthwhile for doing for two reasons. One is theory and one is policy. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, we've never been able to measure the quality of elections before. Uh, and there are all sorts of topics like corruption, which we haven't measured before, like human rights. So it seemed to me that developing a project that could really measure the quality of elections was an important contribution, for example, to classify regimes. In terms of public policy, however, I am also really wanted to make sure that we could have evidence that was available for practitioners. For example, if USAID is thinking about how to uh, help a partner a particular country, or if IFIS or International IDEA, then we can pinpoint the problems of that election the last time, and they can tailor the sort of interventions they want as a result of that. One thing that I find interesting about your project is that um, obviously we associate elections with democracies, but if only five countries in the world are not conducting That's elections, right. there That's are a lot right. of non-democracies conducting Absolutely. elections. How, how does that work? How, does that, how do you uh, analyze that kind of uh, election? Well, we're calling them now uh, a number of different phrases. Sometimes they're called hybrid regimes. Sometimes they're called electoral autocracies. But quite simply, dictators, military regimes, and a whole range of others have learned that having elections legitimates uh, the government. Mm -hmm. But what they can do is they can manipulate the result. Different types of manipulation under different regimes. Uh, But it's all the way from, if you think about an election from the very beginning, how you set up your election management board, through to voter registration, party registration, campaign, the media, the money, uh, vote counts, right through to the outcome. Each of those is a chain. And what people are doing is they're manipulating one part or another across that chain, basically to make sure they get back into office. Mm -hmm. So uh, you chose the term electoral integrity, and it seems like that was a a conscious choice. We usually hear voter fraud or something to that effect. That's right. Can you explain that? Well, quite simply, voter fraud is only one component. And when we look at it, in fact, we don't even find it's the most important component. Um, So for every country we do a survey after the election, uh, and we involve experts to assess a range of problems. And what we found was that, for example, the number one problem in most places around the world is money, campaign finance, Mm -hmm. uh, campaign vote buying, corruption, a range of other issues like that. Media access is a problem. For example, how far people have access to state television Mm -hmm. or how far they can get on on television on a level playing field. Um, But fraud was a relatively minor issue. So it's not necessarily, even though that's the way we always talk about it in the the United States, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the key thing. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I'd argue even in the United States, it's not necessarily the most important problem. Mm So you talked about the the electoral, the chain, yes. uh, the different elements. I imagine you, you know money, access to TV. Those those are affecting each part of that chain. Can you walk us through what what those uh, those individual elements are? 
So what we do is we talk about this. We actually, in our project, identify 11 steps. Mm -hmm. But to make it a bit simple, the first thing you have to have is an electoral management body. So there you want to know, are they impartial or are they appointed by politicians? So that if the election goes against the government, can the EMB stand up and really say, I'm sorry, but there has to be a change? Uh, then you have to have voter registration processes which are efficient and effective, which don't discriminate against any particular area mm -hmm. or tribe or group, depending on the type of culture. Then you've got to make sure party registration and candidate is free and fair. And again, if you're a dictator, Matt, think about this. The easiest way is to make sure that your opponent is uh, in some way dis um, not allowed to stand maybe five years before the election. So think about Russia and the way in which certain uh, opposition voices have been imprisoned on mm. basically trumped up charges. Much more effective if you're going to actually have a fraudulent result than bothering to you know, stuff ballots and, and more overt things like that. Mm -hmm. So you go around the cycle and each one of those can be weakness in different countries. Uh, and any one of those can undermine the quality of the election. Mm -hmm. So you actually uh, proactively rate, uh, or rank rather, um, countries based on their integrity. That's right. How, how exactly do you determine, I mean, I imagine, I imagine when you're assessing the, an election, it's not a straight up or down black and white choice of no. whether it was, you know, it, it was all, all good. So what we do is we involve experts. Mm -hmm. And again, expert surveys are very common nowadays for all sorts of aspects of governance. So after a month after the election result is known, we ask our experts to fill out a questionnaire, which has got 49 items. So it's very detailed, and it's basically their perceptions of electoral integrity, just like you measure perceptions of corruption. So we ask them on things like, was the electoral law fair? Was the EMB independent? Was it, were there problems about the registration process? Was there um, violence after the election? Were there protests, etc., cetera, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And then we can collapse that either to each of the 11 dimensions, which is really helpful if you're working in that country and you want to know what the weaknesses are, or we can create a 100-point score, which we can then uh, compare all countries around the world. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems like the United States doesn't stack up incredibly well against the, right. against the rest of the world in that regard. I think it's right. 26th, I believe, Absolutely. is where it comes down. So, what, what are the uh, things that really stand out here? That well, they won't be a surprise. Down? So money, mm -hmm. most experts said was a problem. A voter registration. Uh, because, again, the way it's done locally means there's all sorts of discrepancies from one place to another. And mm -hmm. um, we know about those issues. And then also issues about basically uh, some, of the, some of the ways in which the electoral laws are framed. So I think experts identified each of those three areas as areas where the United States was not as good as many other democracies. Mm -hmm. It was certainly better than um, countries which are right at the bottom, clearly. But when I rank my countries, I've got 86 countries, 96 elections. The United States came 26th, as you, as you rate, very close to Mexico, mm -hmm. very close to uh, a range of countries like Ghana, uh, which are new democracies, which have had far less experience of elections. Right. So the United States has uh, an interesting system where each state has its own laws regarding That's, elections. Absolutely. So how does it, I imagine we're not the only country uh, to have that arrangement. I, I is I, I, am I wrong in that? But Most countries have more of a national system right. where you have national laws which are passed by the national parliament, which are implemented either by a centralised electoral management body or by regions. Mm -hmm. But very few allow the sort of discretion which we allow at the local level. You know, when you go into your polling area in Cambridge or wherever, um, the advice you're given, the workers that we have, the hours they're open, the places, it's all very much a local, local matter. 
Right. Uh, and that has some advantages in the sense that nobody's going to steal the whole election. It has real disadvantages, though, in terms of the fairness of the process, because mm -hmm. some people can vote for longer than for others. Some people have postal ballots, some others don't. Some people have voter IDs, others are not required to do that. Some people can vote three weeks in advance, others can't. Mm -hmm. So since voting should obviously be the sort of thing which actually should be very similar across, across regions and, and areas, I'd argue very strongly that we need to actually, if we could, uh, reform the process to have more regulation which is more standardized at a higher level. So what kind of countries do you look at when you think this is the, you know, the picture of how we should be conducting elections? Well, the countries which are the ones which come to mind as at the top of the ranking aren't very surprising. So they're countries like Norway, Sweden, the Netherlands, long-standing democracies, smaller welfare states, and a process which they're very meticulous, and it seems they've had very few problems. But you also can get some newer democracies which are in that category as well, countries like Lithuania, countries like Mongolia. I haven't, been uh, I haven't had a series of elections for decades, only really since um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm -hmm. and yet they have good elections as well. Mm -hmm. The middle rank is all sorts of um, quite surprising countries. Some of them, by the way, we also even ask our questions in one-party states. So we ask it in Vietnam, we ask it in Cuba, and even in North Korea. Uh, and some of those are actually in the middle, which is quite interesting. Hmm. So people seem to be thinking that it's an efficient or effective process, even if human rights for, gov for opposition parties is lacking. Right. And then the countries at the bottom, you get some of the worst autocracies around the world. Guinea-Bissau is right at the bottom. So it's a very rich, oil-rich state, incredible inequalities, and everything's corrupt. And so not surprisingly, the election fails as well. But also some countries which are emerging economies. So Malaysia. You know, you think of it as a country which is moving ahead in a number of dimensions, um, and yet the, they have tremendous gerrymandering. So the one party has been in power for decades, and the opposition are making progress, but they're not breaking through. So are there, are there specific conditions under which, you know, economic conditions, political conditions, under which you can kind of foresee electoral problems out ahead of time? So one of the things I do in... Uh, I've got a trilogy of books which I'm writing. First one is out, second one is why elections fail. So this tries to explain it by three factors. One factor is what you might term socioeconomic, mm -hmm. the conditions in the country. Think about running an election in, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo, a country the size of Belgium with no communications, no transport, one of the poorest countries in the world with 30 years of civil war. So those conditions are very hostile. And essentially, uh, we do find that uh, per capita GDP, levels of economic development, do play a role, along with corruption. The more oil-rich the state, the more natural resources, the more problematic. But many other social factors that you might have thought would work, for example, we always think about um, ethnic fractionalization. Countries that are divided by language or by tribe, that doesn't appear to be important, uh, nor does the type of religion. So Muslim countries can actually run elections, according to our data, as effectively as some other countries. Um, so socioeconomic are what you might see as constraints. Certainly by trying to have elections in difficult circumstances, you make things more difficult, but it doesn't mean you can't have a good election. Uh, the next set of factors is international. So these are things like how much they're open to international communication, how far there's been international aid and investment, and how far there's uh, international forces, for example, election monitors. Mm -hmm. And those are mostly important, particularly what we find is that um, diffusion. The more that a country is linked to the global world, the more likely it is to run elections quite well. Hmm. 
So are there specific policy tools that you can, you know, prescribe for countries where the, you know, in the Congo, for for instance, where you have so much going against, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, proper elections being conducted? What what exactly can you, uh, you know, go in there and, and advise? Well, in the Congo, you've got to lay the basics. So when the UN went in to assist the 2004 elections, it was part of the peace building process. And, but basically, the United Nations more or less ran everything from blue helmet security through transportation, because there was no transportation, communications, ballot boxes, administration, etc., etc. Um, there was an outcome, there was a result that seemed to have a winner, so they went along with that. But basically, incredibly difficult to run any sort of contest in that election. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in Afghanistan. But of course, you can also think of some positive examples. Think of India, and you've got tremendous rural poverty tremendous distances, mm -hmm. states which are very diverse, and you have conflict in India as well. At the ballot box, it's quite quite a serious problem. But India, of course, has had elections ever since uh, independence, mm -hmm. and despite being very colorful uh, and very rambunctious, you might say, um, by and large, you know, Indian elections work. Mm -hmm. uh, they get out the right result. When you go into, uh, into a country to analyze the elections, do you have a specific set of, uh, not policy tools, but analytic tools that you, that you use? We have analytical tools, but it's really up to the country themselves to apply those. Mm -hmm. So, for example, after um, we publish our report, the year in elections, every year, and after that we got all sorts of inquiries from various countries in Southeast Asia, various African countries, and they really wanted more detail. And it's up to the country and the election officer to work out what the problems are in their own way. Mm -hmm. It's not for us to tell a country what to do. It's for us to say, look, we've got a, we've got a template. We've got some evidence. We've got some metrics. Um, but you need to work out through things like South-South uh, cooperation, through things like working out what things work within your country in different states as well as centrally. You've got to come to the s solutions that you think are most effective for your country. Well, Professor Norris, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.